This is the Chapel of DBTS. Be sure to subscribe and listen to the Chapel messages weekly. And for more info, please go to dbts.edu. And now today's message. Well, good morning. It's um, one thing to hear the word. It's another thing to respond to it. The difference between the, um, the man who built his house upon the rock was... Uh, and the man who built his house upon the sand is that they both actually heard the word, but one of them responded and the other didn't. And so uh, my desire for you today is not just to hear and agree with what I have to say, but but actually to apply it to your life. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Imagine your son is being picked on at school. What would your response be to a rebel who is challenging your son in that way. Your son comes home from school and says, Dad, Mom, a, a kid at school made fun of me today. I mean, as a parent, it would be difficult for us to forgive someone who's wronging our son. And what if this went on for weeks? And wouldn't we want to see justice carried out on the accuser? What if you later saw this rebel at church? Wouldn't you just want to take care of it yourself? Right, just go up to him and and uh, and shake him into conformity or or beat him in conformity, whatever the case. As believers, we are called to forgive, and forgiveness should not be done sparingly. Rather, it should be done liberally and from the heart. And the reality is, is that we are regularly being sinned against. It may not be someone at our son's school, maybe uh, a boss, maybe. Uh, somebody from work, maybe a neighbor, maybe even someone from our own home, our spouse or our children. certainly happens within the church as well. We're constantly being sinned against, and so we need to be, of all people, the kind of people who are willing to liberally and genuinely forgive. And in Matthew 18, Peter asks a question that we might ask of Jesus. So let's look at this, verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? So here, Jesus in the context is teaching his disciples how to deal with the sinning brother. Verses 15 through 20 says, um, you know, when your brother sins against you, go to him, right? And if he fails to repent, then you need to take someone else with you and then take it to the church and then remove him and so on. And so they're, they're in the context of understanding how do we deal with a sinning brother? And Peter says, well, how many times should we forgive? Would seven times be enough for, uh, for their day? Seven times was a lot. The, according to the Jewish law, it was three times was enough. You forgave three times, and that was enough. No more after that. That was based on their understanding of how God forgave Am- Amos. But Peter goes beyond what even the Jews thought was a good standard. He said, how about seven times? Wouldn't seven times be a really good number? Or is there a better one? And notice Jesus' response in verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but to 70 times seven. So Jesus responds with a strong adversative here. He says, I do not say, or far from that, I tell you, Peter, not that, not seven times, but 70 times 7. And how many is that? Well, the point here is not 
to count offenses. He's not saying, you know, 489, 490, and enough. I'm not going to forgive you anymore. You've sinned against me too many times. His point is, is that we must continually forgive. We must have a heart of forgiveness when people sin against us. And in order to illustrate his point, Jesus uses a parable. And this parable is given to us in verses 23 through 34. The parable begins with a setting where the king orders the settlement of his accounts. He has a census done. How much do people owe me, including the people who are working for me? And it was discovered that the king had a debtor who owed him an enormous debt. Look at verse 24. When he began to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. 10,000 talents. So when you see talents in the scripture, it's referring not to ability, but rather to a large sum. Um, it's actually could be understood as earning power. This man was probably a, an official of a large province in order to gather or to accumulate this kind of a debt. Perhaps he collected taxes for the whole province. But Jesus is not concerned with explaining what his position was, but rather the size of the debt. So what is the size of the debt? 10,000 talents. A talent is best understood as earning power. That is that one talent is equal to the price of a healthy slave. And a healthy slave, they would expect to work for them, uh, from what I can understand, about 20 or 25 years. So uh, this would be about uh, each year uh, they would, they would uh, work a number of days for that, for that master and, and uh, so this would be about 6,000 denarius for one is equal to one talent. A denarius was equal to one day's labor. And we'll see that later on in the text when the servant uh, has the money that's owed to him. So this, this servant owed the king not one talent, but how many in verse 24? 10,000 talents. So if one talent is equal to about 6,000 denarii, this servant owed 60 million denarii, or in our day, maybe $10 billion. And it could be that Jesus is just using a large number here and just giving a, 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 an amount that's just uh, high, and he might be just be saying this is an, an innumerable debt, something that cannot be repaid. I think that will um, be part of his point here as we go through the text. Verse 25, we see the debt problem begins. Um, he recognizes that he owes this money, but verse 25, he did not have the means to repay, and so his lord, the king, commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. Now, the average price of a slave, I said that a healthy slave was one talent, but the average price of a slave was about one-tenth of a talent. And so if even if he got the highest price for himself then would that pay off the debt that he owed? Would that take care of the 10,000 talent debt? Absolutely not. In fact, even if his whole family were sold, it wouldn't even come close to paying back what he owed to the king. And so the king basically cuts his losses, right? He puts his family up for auction in order to relieve this man of his responsibilities. But the story changes in verses 26 and 27 because the debtor, pleas for more time. He pleads for more time. Verse 26, So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the lord of that slave felt compassion. 
and released him and forgave the debt. So the man with no resources, no hope, begs for more time to pay off the debt. Now think with me, would it be possible for him to have enough time to pay back a 10,000 talent debt? Of course not. But notice what the king does. Instead of saying, you know what, I'm going to give you the more time that you asked for, instead he felt compassion, verse 27 says. Now the king has every right to sell this man and his family to pay off the debt. But instead, he takes pity on him. And instead of giving him what he asked for, more time, he cancels the debt. He writes it off as a bad loan. And now the scene repeats itself in a way in verses 28 and following where the debtor, this first servant, now goes to find how much money is owed to him. And he has a fellow slave who owes him some money and he wants to get that money back. And you'll notice some similarities in this scene with a few differences. So in verse 28, he The slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So it's very similar. He he has money that's owed to him, and he's ready to, to, uh, to have that debt paid. But the difference is in how he treats the man. He... He, he says, pay back what you owe. He begins to choke him. Now, do you remember how many denarii the first servant owed to the king? It was 10,000 talents, and I said about 60 million denarii. And compare that to how much is owed to him in verse 28. 60 million versus 100 denarii. And so he grabs the man and chokes him and demands payment. Notice what the servant does in verse 29. It's going to sound very similar So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I'll repay you. And so we'd expect that this servant, recognizing the similar situation, is going to respond in the same way that that, that his master responded to him. But that's not what happens at all. Verse 30, But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So he responds with a cold heart. He throws the man into debtor's prison, which is cold and compassionless. Right? He could have easily sold the slave for more than a hundred denarii, right? And got back the money that was owed to him. But instead he puts him in prison and actually prevents the man from being able to pay back the debt that he owed, right? If he just would have given the man more time. If he just gave him three or four months, he could have paid it back, right? And so the servants of the king find out about this or see it happen and they respond back to the king. They tell the king what happened and notice how the king responds when he finds out in verses 32 through 34. Then summoning him, the the first servant, his lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Notice what the king calls him there in in verse 32. You wicked slave. You had a debt of 60 million denarii, $10 billion. It was forgiven you without a thought. 
And now you have shown yourself to be unforgiving of a much smaller debt. And so the king sees this man as wicked and he reinstates the debt, the original debt. And notice that the judgment is much severer than it was in verse 25. In verse 25, he was to be sold along with his family. But here, he is, notice, verse 34, he was handed over to the torturers until he should repay back all that was owed. Now think with me for a second. How long would this man be tortured? How long would it take him to pay back a debt of 60 million denarii that was put back on his account? He would never pay it back, would he? And so how long would he be tortured? He's going to be tortured to death. So what is Jesus talking about here? And this closing exhortation in verse 35 helps us to connect the dots between this story and our lives. So let's look at verse 35. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So if you fail to forgive, then you can expect the same treatment from God that the the servant received from the king. Jesus is making some points of comparison in a parable. We need to recognize which points he's making. We can't go all the way to the extreme uh, as we'll, we'll see here in just a second. But what are some clear points of comparison that we can see? First, Who is the king? Who is the king in the parable? Well, verse 35, Jesus connects the dots between the king and who in verse 35? My heavenly father, right? The king is the one who is owed an enormous debt. And what is this debt? Well, it seems to be that that is the infinite debt that we have toward God because of our sin. That any sin against the holy God demands an infinite debt payment, doesn't it? A 10,000 talent kind of payment that we owe to God because of our sin. And then the the main question, though, I think is, who is this first servant? Who is it that has been merciless and has had this debt reinstated? Our initial thought is that it's a believer, and we might think that because of the context. Chapter 18, verse 1, uh, Jesus is speaking to his disciples And then verse 27 says the Lord felt compassion and released him. So it sounds like there's some form of forgiveness here. And so it sounds like that Jesus is talking about a believer, that this first servant is a believer. The problem with these assumptions is that Jesus was talking to more than believers, right? Even if he were just talking to the disciples, you have an unbeliever among them. And then in verse 2 of chapter 18, you see that there are, is a larger crowd and children in, involved, so there's probably some unbelievers in the crowd that are listening. So, what's going on here then? If this is uh, talking about a, a, a believer, then we might think, well, this is a loss of salvation, someone who initially had salvation and, and then lost it, lost it, right? He had the forgiveness of God, but because of his actions proved proved something different and now he lost it well we know that that's not the case because John 6 39 Jesus says I lose nothing of all that he has given me but will raise them up on the last day John 10 27 to 29 my sheep hear my voice and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no no one will snatch them out of my hand my father who has given to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand so we are doubly held by God 
God the Father and God the Son. Romans 8.33, who will bring a charge against God's chosen ones? Implied answer is no one. God is the one who justifies. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work, and you will continue it till the day of Jesus Christ. So it cannot be a loss of salvation that Jesus is talking about here. The other option is that it could be an earned salvation, right? That somehow he, he had to show himself worthy of God's forgiveness, and we, all, we know that that also is not the case because of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, because it is by grace that we have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works so that none of us can boast, or Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. So we see we are not saved by works in any way. And so that's not what Jesus is talking about. So the only other option then is that this is a false profession of faith. He's called a wicked servant. He is tortured to death, which seems to imply that, that he never had life, that he receives the final and just punishment of his sins. And so I think we have something similar to what we see in the parable of the sower, right? We have different signs of life. That, that There's some sprouting of apparent life there, but then it gets choked out by the cares of this world. And... Um, and this one certainly seems to have sign of life at some point, but but he turns away. So I would suggest to you that this unforgiving servant is a, a professing believer. Let me show you a couple reasons why I think that. Verse 26, notice what he asks for when he has this huge debt. He says at the end of the verse, Have patience with me and I'll repay you everything. So he thought in some way that he could pay this debt back. He seems to think that he can actually work his way back to God's or the king's favor. Verse 30, the servant shows that he is unwilling to forgive. Verse 33, should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way I had mercy? So in other words, it seems like the king is saying, if you truly grasped my forgiveness, then you would be forgiving. I think that kind of points us to the the, the, the idea here in the text that Jesus is teaching us an important point that we cannot miss and it is this that no true servant of God would act like this heartless servant acted no true servant of God would act like this heartless servant that is that those who grasp the abundant mercy of God's forgiveness will see other people in their proper perspective they will see their sin, the sins that have been committed against them, in the proper perspective. Those who are forgiven must forgive, lest they show themselves incapable of receiving forgiveness. Listen to Jesus in Matthew six fourteen and 15. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. So four principles that we can draw from the text. Number one, believers are motivated to forgive because of the infinite debt that God has forgiven. Believers are motivated to forgive because of the infinite debt that God has forgiven. This seems to be the point of what Jesus is saying. Because we have been forgiven this infinite debt, then we can and should genuinely and liberally forgive others. 
that our obedience to God in this area of forgiveness is based on His character and His works on our behalf, right? This is often the case in the Scripture. Be holy because I'm holy. Have this attitude of humility just as Christ had it. You know, because of the mercies of God, Romans 12, offer your body as a living sacrifice. So we're motivated by what God has done for us. And here the same principle applies. Because God has forgiven us, we should be motivated to forgive. Isn't that what the king said to the servant in verse 33? Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow servant? Those words are for you. Should you not also have had mercy on your on your fellow servant, on your brother? Mercy received should result in mercy given. We have been forgiven an enormous debt that we owe to God, and yet God, with just this small uh, token of faith on our part, forgives us without a thought. So that means that no matter how badly that you have been sinned against, no matter how great of a debt someone else builds against you, you can still forgive them because your debt to God was much greater and it's been forgiven. Do you remember Peter's question, how many times should I forgive? Seven times? I think the underlying question there is why should I forgive more than seven times? Right? What, what's the reason here? What, 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 what's the big deal? And Jesus responds with this parable and a warning that, Peter, we should have this heart of forgiveness so that we are forgive, willing to forgive no matter how many times people sin against us. Keep on forgiving. I think that's Jesus' idea here. Reflect on what God has done for you, and as you do, you will keep on forgiving. This does not mean that your abuser must not face the consequences of his sin. This does not mean that that you must keep physical or sexual abuse secret so that you don't destroy the person's reputation. But it does mean that you must have a heart of forgiveness. Number two, second principle is that believers are motivated to forgive because they know it honors God. This is the positive way of stating Jesus' point. Right In verse 35 he says, my father will also do this to you if you don't forgive. The positive way of saying it is, do you want to please your father? Then forgive. Show yourself that you understand what forgiveness really is and then forgive your brother. That God is honored when you forgive. So use that as the motivation that, that I'm doing this in order to honor God. I, this person doesn't, doesn't deserve my forgiveness, right? After all that they've done to me, I'm going to give it to them because I didn't deserve my father's forgiveness. Number three, believers are motivated to forgive with a genuine heart. Notice verse 35 at the end, he says, if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So what Jesus is saying is that we need to forgive from our heart, not just an external waving of the wand or a mild tolerance for other people. This is the genuine recognition that this person doesn't deserve mercy, but I'm going to do it. And this angers the king when, when we don't do this, when we fail to cancel the debt, when we fail to show mercy. Those who have been truly forgiven will genuinely forgive. The fourth principle, see the extent of the believer's forgiveness. Believers are motivated to forgive with a liberal heart. 
I'm using liberal there to mean generous. There with a generous heart. Peter was looking for a limit, a number. And Jesus says, keep on forgiving. Dispense forgiveness liberally, generously. And notice that this is actually something that you ought to do to your, notice verse 35, your brother. If each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. And I think there's a larger principle here about our unwillingness certainly to forgive unbelievers we ought to have or we ought to have a willingness to forgive unbelievers but i think but i think the point that jesus is driving toward and in the context he's talking about what happens when a, a brother sins against us and and that's the nature of life isn't it in a church that that there are people who are believers who will sin against you and sometimes the worst part of walking through life is being sinned against by the people who are closest to us. Right? Sometimes we experience experience the brunt of their sin the most. In Psalm 55, David is praying to God about his struggles. Listen to what he says. For, he, for it is not an enemy who reproaches me. If it were an enemy, I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. And I can tell you, men, that when you are in ministry for any length of time, you will experience uh, deep and, and uh, traitorous sins against you by the people that you serve, and sometimes the people that you spend the most time with, that, that you can be betrayed even by close friends or close family members. And so we have to have a heart of forgiveness and to recognize that, that we're often going to have to even forgive other Christians. So I think the point of the text, just to summarize, is that because we have been forgiven an infinite debt, we honor God when we genuinely and liberally forgive. So what if this child from school continued to mock your son? And the next day, he says, he's teasing me, Dad. He's calling me names. And what if he spit on your son? And this continues to go on. The child becomes more and more ruthless in his behavior. And what if he beat him up? What if he tortured your son? And what if he went way too far and he actually killed your son what would you do now imagine that you're in a courtroom and you're standing next to the prosecuting attorney and you're looking over at your child's killer and how would you respond in such a situation to this vehement defiance and evil I mean, wouldn't you want this rebel to get what was coming to him? Wouldn't you want the full measure of the law to, to come down on his head? Or would you want to show mercy? Would you be willing to have a heart of forgiveness? Well, let's think about it from the other side. Now imagine that you are the defendant. What if you were that rebel murderer. Now what do you want to happen? What kind of penalty would 
would you deserve for committing such heinous crimes against someone else's son? See, you have a different perspective from that side. You're hoping for something different than the judgment that you deserve. You're hoping for mercy. And let me break the news to you. You are not the plaintiff. You are the rebel. You are guilty of those crimes against someone else's son. You were that ruthless to God's son. Now you might think, well, my sin didn't have a really a big part of Jesus' death. Death, You know, there's all these other people who committed lots of great sins, and those are all piled on him. And mine just kind of, you know, I just kind of put mine on the top. But it wasn't really my responsibility. But do you realize that if you were the only human being ever to live, that your sin would be enough to condemn you to an eternal hell because you violated the laws of the Almighty and Holy God? And that means that the only way that that wrath could be removed from you is to have your sins atoned for by the God-man. And so God's wrath had to be satisfied by Jesus dying for you individually. It was your sins that put Jesus on the tree. Your sins make you no different than, than, than Pilate who ordered his death. You are no different than the scoffers who called out among the mob to scorn his name. You're no better than the soldier who beat him to a bloody pulp with no remorse. And we sing about this with our songs. We recognize that the sins, our, our personal sins, were the ones that put Jesus on the tree. Right In Christ alone, we were scorned by the ones he came to save. He, he was scorned by the ones he came to save. Man of sorrows, sent of heaven, God's own son, to purchase and redeem the very ones who nailed him to that tree. His robes for mine, O oh, wonderful exchange, clothed in everybody else's sin, Christ suffered neath their rage. Is that how it goes? No, clothed in my sin. He as though I accursed and left alone, and I as though he embraced and welcomed home. My Jesus meek was scorned by men, by men in blasphemy. Father, forgive their senseless, senseless sin. He prayed for them, for me. And to his cross, as grace prevailed, God pinned my wretched sin. Behold, the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. And his dying breath brought me life. I know that it is finished. You see, you and I are responsible for the death of God's Son. We are the rebel. God has been scorned by us because of our sin. But, instead of giving what was coming to us, instead of torturing us to death, what has He done? He's shown us mercy. He has forgiven us of the sin that put His Son, His greatest treasure, to death. And so God has just wiped this debt completely from our account, hasn't He? 
We owed a 10,000 talent kind of debt. We owed a 60 million denarii kind of debt, a $10 billion debt that we could never repay. And yet for some reason, when someone sins against us, what do we do? can't forgive that person. You might be thinking right now, well, Jacob, you don't realize how badly this person hurt me. You don't realize how much pain that I've received from this person because of their sin towards me. And so it is actually impossible for me to forgive. My response to you would be, you know what? I probably don't know what kind of pain you've experienced because of their sin. But if you can't forgive, then you don't realize the kind of pain that you've caused to our Savior. I'm not suggesting that the sin against you is small, right? A hundred denarii is not small. It's about $20,000. The nature of this world is that there are ugly consequences to sin. People do pretty horrific things. So this is not a small debt someone's done to you unless you consider it in comparison to what you have done to your father. So Peter says, how many times should he forgive? Jesus responds with a parable by essentially saying, Peter, because you've been forgiven an infinite debt, you should have a heart of forgiveness towards those who sin against you, no matter how big or how many times they sin against you. Friends, you have been forgiven an enormous debt. Should you not be willing to pardon the lesser infractions against those who have wronged you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your forgiveness. We are reminded again of how merciful you've been to us. That we deserved your just wrath. We deserve to pay for our sins in eternity. And yet, for some reason, you showed your kindness to us and wiped our debt clean. By virtue of Jesus Christ's work, his perfect life, and his satisfactory death on our behalf. For some reason, we have trouble forgiving those who sin against us. Or we are quick to forget how much you have forgiven us. So Lord, we want to ask for your forgiveness for that and, and ask you to restore us be willing to have a heart of forgiveness so that when people come and ask for forgiveness, we're ready to do so. Lord, sometimes the hardest people to forgive are those with whom we live most closely. People in our church, people in our home, we tend to to build up resentment. And so, Lord, help us not to do that. Help us to have a heart of forgiveness that that forgives genuinely from the heart and liberally as many times as, as necessary pray that you'd help us to be motivated in this way. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the DBTS Chapel Hour. DBTS is a ministry of Intercity Baptist Church. To find out more about Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, please go to dbts.edu.